Letter 18 of Letters from a Self-Made Merchant to His Son by George Horace Lorimer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peek. Letter 18 from John Graham at the London House of Graham and Company to his son Pierpont at the Union Stockyards in Chicago. Mr. Pierpont is worried over rumors that the old man is a bear on lard and that the longs are about to make him climb a tree. London, October 27th, 1890, blank. Dear Pierpont, Yours of the 21st instant to hand, and I note the enclosed clippings. You needn't pay any special attention to this newspaper talk about the Comstock crowd having caught me short in a big line of November lard. I never sell goods without knowing where I can find them when I want them. And if these fellows try to put their forefeet in the trough, or start any shoving and crowding, they're going to find me forgetting my table manners, too. For when it comes to funny business, I'm something of a humorist myself. And while I'm too old to run, I'm young enough to stand and fight. First and last, a good many men have gone gunning for me, but they've always planned the obsequies before they caught the deceased. I reckon there hasn't been a time in twenty years when there wasn't a nice gates ajar piece all made up and ready for me in some office near the Board of Trade. But the first essential of a quiet funeral is a willing corpse, and I'm still sitting up and taking nourishment. There are two things you never want to pay attention to, abuse and flattery. The first can't harm you, and the second can't help you. Some men are like yellow dogs. When you're coming toward them, they'll jump up and try to lick your hands, and when you're walking away from them, they'll sneak up behind you and snap at your heels. Last year, when I was bullying the market, the Longs all said that I was a kind-hearted old philanthropist who was laying awake nights scheming to get the farmers a top price for their hogs, and the shorts allowed that I was an infamous old robber who was stealing the pork out of the working man's pot. As long as you can't please both sides in this world, there's nothing like pleasing your own side. There are mighty few people who can see any side of a thing except their own side. I remember once I had a vacant lot out on the avenue, and a lady came into my office and in a soothing syrupy way asked if I would lend it to her, as she wanted to build a crèche on it. I hesitated a little, because I had never heard of a crèche before, and some ways it sounded sort of foreign and frisky, though the woman looked like a good, safe, reliable old heifer. But she explained that a crèche was a baby farm, where old maids went to wash and feed and stick pins in other people's children while their mothers were off at work. Of course there was nothing in that to get our pastor or the police after me, so I told her to go ahead. She went off happy, but about a week later she dropped in again, looking sort of dissatisfied, to find out if I wouldn't build the crèche itself. It seemed like a worthy object, so I sent some carpenters over to knock together a long frame pavilion. She was mighty grateful, you bet, and I didn't see her again for a fortnight. Then she called by to say that so long as I was in the business and they didn't cost me anything special, would I mind giving her a few cows? She had a surprised and grieved expression on her face as she talked, and the way she put it made me feel that I ought to be ashamed of myself for not having thought of the livestock myself. So I threw in half a dozen cows to provide the refreshments. I thought that was a pretty good measure, but the carpenters hadn't more than finished with the pavilion before the woman telephoned a sharp message to ask why I hadn't had it painted. I was too busy that morning to quarrel, so I sent word that I would fix it up and when I was driving by there next day, the painters were hard at work on it. There was a sixty-foot frontage of that shed on the avenue, and I saw right off that it was just a natural signboard, 
So I called over to the boss painter, and between us we cooked up a nice little ad that ran something like this. Graham's Extract. It makes the weak strong. Well, sir, when she saw the ad the next morning, that old hen just scratched gravel. Went all around town saying that I had given a $500 shed to charity and painted a $1,000 ad on it. Allowed I ought to send my check for that amount to the Kretsch Fund. Kept at it till I began to think there might be something in it, after all, and sent her the money. Then I found a fellow who wanted to build in that neighborhood, sold him the lot cheap, and got out of the Kretsch industry. I've put a good deal more work into my business, and I've drawn a good deal more than money out of it, but the only thing I've ever put into it which didn't draw dividends in fun or dollars was worry. That is a branch of the trade which you want to leave to our competitors. I've always found worrying a blame sight more uncertain than horse racing. It's harder to pick a winner at it. You go home worrying because you're afraid that your fool new clerk forgot to lock the safe after you, and during the night the lard refinery burns down. You spend a year fretting because you think Bill Jones is going to cut you out with your best girl, and then you spend ten worrying because he didn't. You worry over Charlie at college because he's a little wild, and he writes you that he's been elected president of the YMCA. And you worry over William because he's so pious that you're afraid he's going to throw up everything and go to China as a missionary, and he draws on you for a hundred. You worry because you're afraid your business is going to smash, and your health busts up instead. Worrying is the one game in which, if you guess right, you won't get any satisfaction out of your smartness. A busy man has no time to bother with it. He can always find plenty of old women in skirts or trousers to spend their days worrying over their own troubles and to sit up nights waking his. Speaking of handing over your worries to others naturally calls to mind the widow Williams and her son Bud, who was a playmate of mine when I was a boy. Bud was the youngest of the widow's troubles, and she was a woman whose troubles seldom came singly. Had fourteen altogether, and four pair of them were twins. Used to turn them loose in the morning when she let out her cows and pigs to browse along the street, and then she'd shed all worry over them for the rest of the day. Allowed that if they got hurt, the neighbors would bring them home, and if they got hungry, they'd come home. And some ways, the whole drove always showed up safe and dirty about mealtime. I've no doubt she thought a lot of Bud, but when a woman has fourteen, it sort of unsettles her mind so she can't focus her affections or play any favorites, and so when Bud's clothes were found at the swimming hole one day, and no Bud inside them, she didn't take on up to the expectations of the neighbors who had brought the news, and who were standing around waiting for her to go off into something special in the way of high strikes. She allowed that they were Bud's clothes all right, but she wanted to know where the remains were hinted that there'd be no funeral or such-like expensive goings-on until someone produced the deceased. Take her, by and large, she was a pretty cool, calm cucumber. But if she showed a little too much Christian resignation, the rest of the town was mightily stirred up over Bud's death, and everyone just quit work to tell each other what a noble little fellow he was, and how his mother hadn't deserved to have such a bright little sunbeam in her home, and to drag the river between talks. But they couldn't get a rise. Through all the worry and excitement, the widow was the only one who didn't show any special interest, except to ask for results. But finally, at the end of the week, when they'd strained the whole river through their drags and hadn't anything to show for it but a collection of tin cans and dead catfish, she threw a shawl over her head and went down the street to the cabin of Louisiana Clemestra, an old yellow woman who would go into a trance for four bits and find a fortune for you for a dollar. I reckon she'd have called herself a clairvoyant nowadays, but then she was just a voodoo woman. 
Well, the widow said she reckoned that boys ought to be let out as well as in for half price, and so she laid down two bits, allowing that she wanted a few minutes' private conversation with her bud. Clyde said she'd do her best, but that spirits were mighty snifty and high-toned, even when they'd only been poor white trash on earth, and it might make them mad to be called away from their hijinks if they were taking a little recreation, or from their high-priced New York customers if they were working, to tend to cut-rate business. Still, she'd have a try, and she did. But after having convulsions for half an hour, she gave it up, reckoned that Bud was up to some cussedness off somewhere, and that he wouldn't answer for any two bits. The widow was badly disappointed, but she allowed that it was just like Bud. He'd always been a boy that never could be found when anyone wanted him. So she went off, saying that she'd had her money's worth in seeing Clytie throw those fancy fits. But next day she came again and paid down four bits, and Clytie reckoned that that ought to fetch Bud sure. Some ways, though, she didn't have any luck. And finally the widow suggested that she call up Bud's father. Buck Williams had been dead a matter of ten years, and the old man responded promptly. "'Where's Bud?' asked the widow. "'Hadn't laid eyes on him. Didn't know he'd come across. Had he joined the church before he started? No. Then he'd have to look downstairs for him.' Clytie told the widow to call again, and they'd get him sure. So she came back next day and laid down a dollar. That fetched old Buck Williams' ghost on the jump, you bet, but he said he hadn't laid eyes on Bud yet. They hauled the sweet by and by with a dragnet, but they couldn't get a rap from him. Clytie trotted out George Washington and Napoleon and Billy Patterson and Ben Franklin and Captain Kidd, just to show there was no deception, but they couldn't get a whisper even from Bud. I reckon Clytie had been stringing the old lady along, intending to produce Bud's spook as a sort of red-fire, calcium-light, grand march of the Amazon's climax, but she didn't get a chance. For right there the old lady got up with a mighty set expression around her lips and marched out, muttering that it was just as she had thought all along. Bud wasn't there. And when the neighbors dropped in that afternoon to plan out a memorial service for her lost lamb, she chased them off the lot with a broom said that they had looked in the river for him, and that she had looked beyond the river for him, and that they would just stand pat now and wait for him to make the next move. Allowed that if she could once get her hands on that lost lamb's wool, there might be an opening for a funeral when she got through with him, but there wouldn't be till then. Altogether it looked as if there was a heap of trouble coming to Bud if he had made any mistake and was still alive. The widow found her lost lamb hiding behind a rain barrel when she opened up the house next morning, and there was a mighty touching and affecting scene. In fact, the widow must have touched him at least a hundred times, and every time he was affected to tears, for she was using a bed-slat, which is a powerful, strong moral agent for making a boy see the error of his ways. And it was a month after that before Bud could go down Main Street without some man who had called him a noble little fellow, or a bright manly little chap while he was drowned, reaching out and fetching him a clip on the ear for having come back and put the laugh on him. No one except the widow ever really got the straight of Bud's conduct, but it appeared that he had left home to get a few Indian scalps, and that he came back for a little bacon and corn-pone. I simply mention the widow in passing as an example of the fact that the time to do your worrying is when a thing is all over, and that the way to do it is to leave it to the neighbors. I sail for home tomorrow. Your affectionate father, John Graham. End of letter 18